maybe this the 21st century is just about the humbling of art. We've all just kind of come down a few pegs. We're like, well, what should we paint about? Should we paint about that? No, that's too certain. No, this is too grand. Should I express myself? Oh, that's that's too egotistical. We're looking for something to to paint about. So maybe that's part of what I'm searching for in my work sometimes. Welcome. I'm Doug Casina. I'm an artist, a gallerist, a curator, and a collector. And this is Artbound, where we deconstruct the myths and misconceptions of the art world. We have the conversations here with artists that aren't going to be found anywhere else. In this episode, we're going to talk about symbolism and narration in art. I have two really amazing guests today joining me uh, from her closet slash amazing wardrobe room and studio in Washington, D.C. I have Teresa Oaxaca. Hi, Teresa. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Doug. I'm happy to be here. And from his, well, studio that's in a church in Denver, Colorado, uh, we have Kevin Sloan joining us, too. Thanks for joining us, Kevin. Great to be here, Doug. Um, so before we really dive into this topic, um, which I'm really excited to do, let me just give uh, the listeners a little bit of background about the two of you guys. Uh, Kevin Sloan is more of a metaphorical realist painter. Um, his work is in the collection of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, the Phoenix Art Museum, the Museum of Fine Art in Santa Fe, the Tampa Art Museum, the Tucson Museum of Art. And he's lived, I think, everywhere um, in the country at this point, too. Kevin also has a background uh, where he's worked for a major collector. He also has worked in the gallery business. And uh, prior to his now 25-year-plus career as a, a professional artist, Teresa is also in the contemporary realism genre, and you know she told me today that uh, that she's been looking at her works more as still lifes that have people in them, and I think that's a really interesting introduction to her work. Um, and we'll kind of dive into what that really means as far as the role of narrative in her work. Uh, she was formally trained in Florence uh, at the Academy of Art in Italy, and uh, she's had works and shows at the Museum of Modern Art in Barcelona and the Via Bardini in Florence as well. Um, she also has like an amazing line of clothing. Um, that you can uh, check out on her website as well. All right. So as artists, we're all storytellers. And it can really go in a bunch of different directions as far as how our ability to tell those stories really shows up in our work. Um, so Kevin, could you tell me kind of what the idea of even symbolism means to you and how it kind of is defined for you and how it shows up in your work? Sure. I mean, I'll try. To me, it's this really broad ocean of how I kind of live in the world. And I'll, I'll step back just a little bit. I was raised in a very traditional Catholic upbringing. And with that came a lot of really rich, powerful imagery um, in the form of uh, rituals statues, the environments, like the church, etc. 
I don't necessarily participate or believe in all that anymore, but it was a deep and pretty, had a deep and profound kind of impact on me, I think as a young kind of visually sensitive kid. So I think as a result, I tend to see the world as a place that is full of metaphors, symbols, and images first. I kind of go there first. So for example, if I'm out in the world, and any of my friends can attest to this, we're walking along and I'll say something like, oh, that looks like it always refers to something else. So as a, as a means to create things as an artist, the world out there is constantly giving me these sort of literal information like, oh, barren tree, whatever, it's winter. But in fact, to me, it's like, oh my God, what does that mean symbolically? Or how can I use that as a metaphor as something to talk about a bigger topic? So it's it's this, um, like I said, it's like an ocean I kind of swim in. It doesn't feel separate to me. Like I got to go seek out a symbol to use to then incorporate into a piece of art that I'm making. It's actually almost inherent in the way I kind of view the world. Um, as a result, the world's kind of like this magical and wondrous place because everything is more than what it appears to be at first glance. And you describe your work as, you know, a still life with people in it. And when I look at your work, Teresa, I almost see this stage that's been set. And it really piques my curiosity as far as like what has happened leading up to this moment that you're capturing and what's happening next. Like my mind is already playing these games as far as what I'm reading into it, um, just based on the elements that you have presented there. Is that how you're intentionally setting up your paintings? Are you creating this story that's uh, for the viewer to kind of uh, insert themselves in? Or how do you see those symbols uh, engaging with the viewer in your work? Well, I I want to say that uh, Kevin's description about how he sees the world resonates a lot with me. I took art very seriously from a young age. So since I was about 15, I was on this track to become a classically trained painter. And I was very steeped in the uh, European masters and going back to like ancient Greek and Roman art. And uh, I've, I've clocked a lot of hours in museums um, around uh, America and Europe. So um, I went to school for about five years in, in Florence, Italy. So I had a lot of opportunities to travel up and down and see different cities. And I would just visit all the churches I could. I would visit all the museums I could and just spend like days and days getting lost in these places. And so I also kind of felt like I was being brought up with a, not just like a, a, a like a, a Catholic or any kind of like specific religion, but just like uh, being steeped in all these different kinds of like ancient cultures and, and religions and mythologies and just layers of them. And, um, a lot of those eras had a lot of nuance in them, I think because people couldn't read and also because of a lot of the symbolism in, um, let's say like the mosaics in Ravenna, Italy, for example, like a lot of the symbolism might be lost on a modern audience or, or symbolism in Pompeii murals might be lost on us. So it's just, becomes these really interesting images and then you see kind of resonances through time 
And then um, coming up to like the modern era, I wanted to make these paintings inspired by like, you know, giant Baroque paintings like by Caravaggio or Rubens um, or just the the kind of the churches you would see in, in Rome where everything's been painted and, and frescoed and, and uh, carved in marble. And, and it just took like hundreds of years to build, but that's was it just wasn't possible for me to do it as a single individual. And I also just don't see a lot of um, work for artists in that way. So I had to find a way to, to use my skills and interests. And so I ended up making small compositions um, and uh, using a lot of like found objects. So, you know, going to like antique stores or um, I'm kind of a collector. So I have a lot of props and, and costumes and things like that. So I try to recreate this feeling of, of like a bigger, like the Baroque or some kind of big movement, but on a small scale in my studio. And um, I was always kind of resistant to fit into like a genre. I didn't want to be just a portrait painter or just a still life painter. So I think I ended up just putting everything I could into the pictures and um, they were still pretty contained, like, like a setup, you know, like a stage setup. So um, I found myself doing things kind of along the line of one of my older uh, heroes, uh, Caravaggio, or uh, there's a, there's a modern um, filmmaker called uh, Jan Svankmeyer that I'm fond of. And he has a lot of found objects and stop animation and old dolls in some of his films. Um, and so those are some of the things bouncing around in my head that I could do. I think it's really interesting that both of you guys hit on the idea of religious iconography right off the bat. And I also um, see that relationship between literacy and telling a story uh, visually. Now I'm wondering, uh, since those were usually commissioned pieces by the church or by a family that were trying to tell a narrative or trying to tell a story. What do you guys really see as the stories that we should be telling right now through art? Is it something that still is this shared history or this mythology or how does it become more personal to your individual practice and story? Well, I have some thoughts on that. It's something I think about from time to time, and it becomes more acute at certain times. And one of the big issues for me has been over the years, I used to have these sort of rules I'd set for myself in terms of iconography. Like if I hadn't personally experienced it, like if I had never seen an alligator, I couldn't paint an alligator. It had to have this personal connection to the thing before I could go forward with real honesty in terms of engaging with it as an image. Otherwise, it would become this kind of crazy pastiche, this collage of stuff from all over the world. And now we have access to so much imagery from all over the planet at our fingertips that it's, it's, it's rich, but it's also really kind of seductive in a kind of a dangerous way for me sometimes. I've since kind of jettisoned that idea of like these rules, what I can and cannot utilize in my work in terms of narrative or symbolic imagery. But I do feel still that I want my work to be uh, available um, as a kind of a readable thing, an image thing, far into the future. And hopefully there will be a future that people will be able to see these things. And so in doing so, it's interesting challenge to come up with images or combinations of things that maybe could have been understood 
300 years ago, 100 years ago, and I don't know what the future will bring, but hopefully in 100 years from now. So here's a, a kind of an odd example. Uh, a show that's opening soon here in Denver is going to have a painting in it with in the painting sits on the ground, a typewriter. Now, a typewriter to me is something that I physically understand. I actually used to use one. My niece and nephew, however, to them, it's a relic. It's this ancient antique thing. So they know what it represents, but they don't have a physical experience of it. So it's this odd use of this thing, which to me embodies, um, it was like a vehicle for poetry, for great literature to be written, um, for all kinds of communication. But now it sits in this painting on the ground and weeds are kind of come growing up in throughout the keys in this particular painting. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. I found it interesting as a painting idea, but will it read, so to speak, as a narrative into the future? I don't know. Um, but right now it felt poignant to me to use that as an image. And in that context of it being in a landscape, um, I found that to be kind of a rich place to start from. What came to mind for me while you were telling that uh, the narrative of the typewriter is just how much of our personal um, experiences we bring towards any painting or any piece of art that we're looking at. I, like Teresa, your work is so rich visually and it, there's almost like a maximalism to them at times. Um, when you're placing those items in that composition, uh, is there, does each one of them have kind of a, a latent meaning for you? Yeah. In, in my compositions, I have a, a pretty big collection of items that all have symbolic meaning. Like, like if I put the chicken in and then I have some eggs, I'm kind of referencing what came first, you know, the chicken or the egg. I'm sort of questioning um, the beginning and the ending of things. If I put in certain colors of drapery, you know, I might be uh, referencing certain old master compositions. Um, I'll have uh, soldier puppets instead of, you know, real soldiers. I'll have, I'll have a lot of things like a crown means power or tyranny. Um, I have, I have a, one of my favorite little things to put in is like a turtle crawling away with a crown on its back. Um, or I have uh, a skull with a crown on it, kind of symbols of like past empires or past ways of governance or being that don't, we don't have anymore. I like to put hints of time in my work. Certain clothing, I, I do reference a lot. Uh, the Baroque era, I think it's just more because I like that the costumes and I can't collect everything, but that's something I can collect. So that's kind of more of a maybe a trademark at this point for my work. Um, but uh, I, uh, I, I, I like to think of um, the way I come up with paintings. It's uh, part surrealism and a little bit of a like a state of consciousness kind of writing um it's almost like a, a jack kerouac novel or, or some kind of poetry i'm not as sure about the messages i'm making as as maybe some of those um religious paintings that we were talking about you know from the past like i don't have a a doctrine so much when i'm making things um i, I definitely want all my work and ideas to be original i'm very very 
I don't know if I should say opinionated about that, but I don't want to recycle other people's photography or, or, or take anyone else's, um, uh, work. I want to create something new. And so I, if I, if I am using some mythology or, um, religion, I'm always trying to create something on the side. So, um, for example, I've got a, a really big painting I've started that's, uh, 10 feet by 10 feet. And it's got the tree of life in it, which is a very common theme in, uh, in history. Um, and it has kind of a, a garden of Eden theme. So there's like sharks, there's going to be a lot of different animals, but they're all peaceful. Um, and then there's an Eve and instead of a snake, I have a great white shark kind of lifting her up to reach the tree. She's going to grasp for some fruit and I'm still coming up with the fruit. I'm still coming up with like all the symbols I'm going to put in. It's, it's a piece that's been evolving for like a year, maybe I had it in my head and then I stretched it and primed it and now I've drawn it out and I've started putting the major characters in, but, um, kind of like, like Doug was saying, I mean, I'm mean Kevin, sorry, Kevin was saying, I, I do like almost everything I paint to be something that I've seen. So there was a hotel I stayed at in Berlin the summer before COVID happened. And I was in front of a giant fish tank, uh, part of SeaWorld. Um, so it was a 75 foot fish tank and I was just, that was my window. It was just the fish tank. And so I took lots of videos of the fish tank. So all those fish are going to go in my painting. Um, there's lights from the elevator across through the fish tank that are going to be showing through. Yeah. So, so I just, I just have, um, I have, I have trees I visit when I go on runs that I see at different times of year and I do sketches, but mostly I just remember them and I maybe take some photographs. So that tree is going to be in the painting. Like, you know, all these things are like, like my things. Um, and I, I definitely want to avoid any kind of like a uh, sense of, of creating propaganda. I think that's something that maybe the early abstract expressionists were, were conscious of, like they didn't want to spell things out too clearly. They, they wanted to create, uh, I'm thinking of like Francis Bacon now or Lucian Freud, they were creating like states of, of, of being, but they were referencing very common narratives that we would all recognize but maybe not be able to put our finger on. And I, I think that's kind of the state of the world. Like there's just so much imagery going around and um, it, it's good to create something new um, and, and maybe looking for some kind of meaning while doing it. Well, it sounds like you've created this arsenal of images that you use as language to create the narrative. And one thing that I have noticed between both of your works, too, I think I'm just starting to understand some commonalities, too, is you both reference this idea of poetry a lot in your work. So it's like you're visually creating these words, these symbols that you've figured out have some very specific meaning for yourself. And you're then imposing this narrative, this lyrical narrative into the painting. Um what are some of those symbols, Kevin, that you have kind of given meaning to in those objects that you work with in your paintings? And how does that contemporary symbolism differ from maybe more traditional symbolism that we were referencing, uh, you know, with historic or religious iconography? Yeah, there's a few things that immediately jump to mind. Um, and like most recently, I've done a small a group of small paintings um, which feature kind of as a primary character, if you will, um, this tree stump. 
you know, like I live in Colorado, there are forests all around, not, I live in the city, but just west of here in the mountains. And if you go to the mountains, you'll see the evidence of logging sometimes, or forest fires more recently. Um, that all interests me because when I see a tree stump, for example, it's just ripe with symbolic possibilities. It, it, it can be in various stages of its sort of lifespan as it is as a stump now. For example, one could be completely consumed by mosses and fungi and all these wonderful things, and it's having a new life to support that life. We see the stump as this kind of end of life. Oh, the tree is gone for whatever reason. But in fact, to me, that stump becomes, like I just said, this rich microcosm of new life becoming something else. But for me, as a person who likes the idea of like an icon in a painting, it's now a pedestal. It's this beautiful, organic little place to place something. So for example, and I was so intrigued, Teresa, when you said something about the crown, because I've been working with this crown imagery lately as well. And I just did a little painting. So here's the stump, sawed right off, clearly the hand of sort of humankind that only humans do that with tools, right? And here's this stump created. On top of it is this little paper crown, like made of a newspaper that I painted. And it's very fragile. It's, it could blow away. And yet, what's interesting to me is that paper crown is made from the material that the tree offers to us. We get paper from trees. So I love this sort of compound sentence that's created sort of with imagery in that regard. So that is a really um, secular thing in that it doesn't refer back to religious iconography, like the cross of Jesus, which is wood. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about this me seeking out this kind of um, sacred that is embedded in the secular. So for me, that is a great interest right now. Um, It's kind of like I'm trying to come up with a new visual language, which in fact isn't new at all. It's actually quite pagan and ancient. It goes way back to where trees were sacred. And then the Christians came along and like, no, enough of that. Uh Uh-uh. Only saints are sacred and only the holy this or that or whatever. I'm not actively opposing that, but in fact, I'm much more interested in seeking out a new way of sort of embellishing the world out there with this kind of, I'm going to use the word again, sacred. I can't think of another way to say it. Devotional. Maybe that's the word. Um, Kind of possibility within the painting so that a tree stump with a paper crown on it becomes this object of veneration in a way. Um, I may or may not get that right. I kind of wanted to go back to something to Teresa said or all these images that she uses and they have meaning like the color of the cloth and all these things. And I was raised in all that world too, in terms of art history. But I sometimes ask myself, okay, I'm putting this stuff in the painting. Is anybody going to get it? Okay. I don't know. I can't control that completely. And if they don't get it completely, is it a failed painting? And so then I have to come back to this place of, well, it feels true to me and it interests me right now and I'm going to go with it all in. And so it's going to be a paper crown on a tree stump. Oh, and by the way, in back of that painting, 
there's this lightning bolt coming down and there's a storm brewing. So there's a whole other level of possibility of lightning and fires or rain and paper. Those two things don't go together. So I keep going on and on. And in the end, I have to just decide, you know what? I don't know if anybody's going to get all that, but for me to create what I feel is a complete painting and a truthful painting, it all has to be there. I have to be kind of all in with all those subplots and those sub narratives. Uh, We'll see what the viewer does with all that, because I'm not always going to be there to explain it all like I'm doing right now. So um, narrative painters have that as a problem and a great opportunity, I think. We can throw it all out there for the viewer, and they'll take what they can from it. Usually it's like people say, oh, I love birds, and then they're done. (laughs) And that's great. That's great. But it's like, oh, but it's a bird that is extinct. Oh, really? Oh, you know, so they don't know that unless I say that. So I have to just let that go. Um, Narrative painting, otherwise, I think if it gets too caught in the literal connection between what's seen in the painting and its meaning outside the painting, it converge on illustration, perhaps, or it's too obvious. And then it's not poetry anymore. Like to go back to your initial concept, Doug, these have to be these sort of open-ended poetic moments in my mind. I was reading into your answer that perhaps there have been occasions where the viewer hasn't gotten what you were putting out there, you know, and maybe is seeing it at surface level. Um, Do you have an example of one of those that especially irked you? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a. Pain- I thought you might. <laughs> <laughs> it was some years ago, and I was doing these kind of highly uh, composed paintings. Um, actually, kind of more in line with what you do, Teresa. I mean, there's there were deep. I work out these problems about where things were going to be in in advance, which I don't do as much anymore. But this particular painting, it had a children's like a blow-up inflatable pool like little kids would have in their backyard. Like it was red, yellow, and blue, real pretty. And within it, though, were standing three um, whooping cranes. And there was a little boat floating in the water that they were st- sitting in. And it, But this was like a tableau vivant. You know, like a, it was this interior space. Curtains were drawn back. It was almost like a stage set. And then the curtains were pulled back to reveal this moment in time and everything was standing still and there was a little monkey on the edge of the swimming pool and he was kind of tending to the boat so on the boat was written a number like you know boats have these like registration numbers whatever they have and it was like 574 574 and i put that number on there because at that moment when i was painting that painting there were 574 whooping cranes left in existence in north america they're a highly endangered creature and they're magnificent they're like five feet high and so this painting created this little world for them to sit in this little protected refuge of a swimming pool so so there was a lot of irony and kind of tongue-in-cheek anyway so to get to the point of the gap between what I intended and what I created and then the viewer's experience. It was on exhibit, so I was there for the opening. And a woman came up to me who was clearly interested in the work, loved that painting, and said, oh, all she could talk about was the swimming pool and how she had a deep connection. Oh, I had a pool like that when I was a kid, and then I got some for my kids, and now my grandchildren. 
and that was actually really kind of lovely. But I, I was a little crestfallen because I thought, oh my God, this is about all these loss. This is about these birds and they're no more. You know, in the following year, there were like 300, you know, it was horrible. And, you know, I just felt like, wow, I can't lead, I can't take them by the hand. They're, people are going to do what they're going to do. And people will always, I think, be drawn to what they need to see in something. I think that's a really interesting point too, because when you're putting this imagery out there for the interpretation of the viewer, I think there is a tendency, and I don't know if this becomes our own ego as artists to want to like put everything we possibly can. Like, this is what we need to tell you, and this is what you should be taking from it versus inviting that conversation for the viewer to kind of insert themselves. Um, where, Teresa, have you kind of seen that line in your work where you're kind of dancing between giving them too much and wanting them to bring their own narrative in there? Hmm. I, I don't know if I'm as concerned with people reading my narratives. I, I've, I've always just enjoyed beautiful art, you know, and, and paintings. And um, uh, I, I have a lot of books about decorative art. So these are the things that would have adorned buildings you know, like, like it could have just been like, you know, figureheads on ships or patterns on, on walls and all the kind of mold, moldings on ceilings. And, and, um, I, I, I like that. And, you know, growing up a bit in Europe, as I did in art school, you would just see decoration everywhere outside, um, like public sculptures and, and fountains. And, and you don't know, you didn't always know what it meant, but you appreciated it. And you were happy someone had made it and it became part of your life. So um, I I have an appreciation of things that I don't always understand the meaning. Um, and maybe this is, uh, this is this is false, but like I always feel like if it was really well made or it resonates with me or the viewer, it must have some meaning. And then I kind of like to try to figure out what it is. Um, I, I think also of... Uh, this book Finnegan's Wake, which I just started trying to read by James Joyce. He wrote a lot of long, complicated books full of symbolism and references to literature and history that um, you almost need like a, a companion book to understand the book. But it's just such a beautiful book. And the way I'm trying to read it is I just listen to a chapter and then I go pick it apart with the companion book. And um it just flows off the tongue and, and reads beautifully as it is. It's almost like looking at paintings um, because you might not understand it right away, but you just enjoy looking at it and spending time and it takes some time to unravel perhaps. So it's, it's, it's um, there's just so many kinds of, of art and visual art, which is, which is fantastic. Um, it's funny this whole time we've been uh, talking about this. I've been thinking about these, these three pieces of art I saw um, on a, on a long run yesterday. I ran past the Kennedy center which is in Washington, D.C., and they have changing art installations all the time. And and this time I was like, is this even art? They just had these big colored signs that just said words. So it, it, is it an art or is it a sign? But the words just said like unity, peace, and equality for all. And it was like very easy to understand the message. And I got it completely. Um, it was huge. It was unmistakable. Um and I'm thinking, you know, I was thinking to myself as an artist, like, like, is it art? I don't know. I like the meaning. Um, 
I don't want my art to be that easy to understand though. So I'm happy being like a little less understood and, and with more, more beautiful design and stuff in my work than being too easily understood and maybe, um, too quick to digest. So I'm, I'm okay with being lost a little bit. Both of you are so good at that, that you seduce the viewer into having these deeper conversations with the beauty and with the the aesthetics that you guys, uh, that visual poetry that you put down on canvas. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to dive in more to maybe those times that it does hit you over the head or it is meant to spell something out. Welcome back. I think we're figuring out the nuances behind narrative in painting is really this idea of how much does the artist kind of lay out in front of the viewer and how much of the job is it the viewer to bring their narrative to it and like discover it on their own. I think that's a really delicate balance. Um, and it's also maybe an assumption of roles. Um, if we're looking at art as communication, is the art, uh, you know, more dictating what that conversation is, or is it asking a question? And I feel like that might be some of the subtlety when we start talking about what illustration is uh, compared to a painting that has narrative quality to it. Uh, does that resonate with either of you? Yeah, I can speak briefly to that. I'm intrigued by the idea of like literal storytelling in a painting, the possibility of that, but I don't want to do it. I believe that there's benefit there. I think that there's great art that is that, very specifically. Um, Alexis Rockman is a painter that does that kind of work, um, dealing with very uh, kind of dire environmental issues, and he's done this for years. Um, it's very clear what's going on, and it's um, impeccably kind of designed and executed. Um, but we live in a world that's bombarded with incredible images, um, from moving images to still images. We spend a lot of time in front of screens, which are just full of things to kind of consume. Um, and as a visually sensitive person, I have to be really careful, I think, as a painter to not get sort of caught into that kind of paradigm, which is... It has to say this, that these things have to come together for it to be a successfully understood image. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll access the internet. I went, what does the heron do when it's about to take off in flight? There's a bazillion pictures of that online for me. Um, I could then take those and kind of illustrate that perfectly. Or what I'll do instead is I'll print it. I don't want it on my screen anymore. I want a physical version of it. And then from there, I can kind of have it over there to the side and kind of sketch from it or work with it. And it becomes this sort of imperfect version. And that suits me and sort of like the, the way that I want to be presenting the world to the viewer via my paintings. One thing that I 
I'm noticing all of these similarities, um, you know, with the way that you guys are approaching it, the idea that um, it can be this visual poetry. Um, there's this reference to maybe this veneration for nature um, that I think is in uh, both of your works. Uh, and then, uh, and kind of this searching for this new iconography. One thing where you guys uh very much are separate is Kevin. I don't think I've ever seen a figure in your art. Whereas as we kind of discussed at the, the introduction with Teresa's work um, that Teresa, you describe your work as still lives that have figures as a presence. Um, could you define for me, first of all, why isn't it a figurative painting? I will. And, and I just was thinking about something as, um, Kevin was talking about, you know, the role of imagery, you know, this whole discussion. Um, I think that what we do, this kind of um, not as literal as it could be image making that is a little archaic, perhaps. I think that the images um, are able to be receptacles from an idea or some kind of plan a person might have in their lives and then actually making it happen. So I, I think about like, you know, myself reading stories or biographies as a, as a younger person wanting to become an artist or wanting to become knowledgeable and something. When these, some of these books had illustrations in them, they weren't really literal illustrations. They were just like, you know, images that were memorable. Um, it's almost like I kept these images in my head throughout my education or my young adulthood and they helped bring me to where I wanted to be. And it's like, it's not an advertising image. It's not a, a diagram, you know, it's, it's not a, a word image. It's just some kind of receptacle image that maybe you like the aesthetics of it, or you like the style of it and you end up just carrying it in your head, maybe through life. Um, I had, um, I had, a, I had a collector recently. She had bought a painting of a doll holding a skull. It was a Victorian doll and it was part of a series of four images and it didn't have any people in it. I mean, the skull could have been the person and I did call the painting relic. Um, and she had inquired about it and then not gotten back to me for about a year. And then recently she, she said, is that painting still available? I said, yeah. And she came over and bought it right away. And she told me that, to her, the painting symbolized her battle with cancer because she wanted the painting. Um, she didn't know if she, she was an art collector, but it, you know, it was a big purchase for her and she had this battle coming up with cancer. And then she said that, you know, she survived it and she had this money left over from health insurance covering most of the operations. It was like amazing how much she had to go through. And this image had been in her head the whole time because it, 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 matched her aesthetic perfectly of her house and her collection she she liked day of the dead she liked shabby chic kind of diy so this for her was like her mascot of a perfect painting or image and then she's like now now it's mine i'm taking it home and it made her whole year better she said i was like wow you know so this this painting that's not what i was thinking it was about but it became that for her and i've had images they, they can become sort of like conduits for like who you want to become or something you're going through, or something you want to achieve, um, that that's a possible, um, you know, use for some of these images that we make. Um, 
And um, yeah, that's why I don't necessarily feel like they have to be portraits. They can just be still lives with people. It's it's like um, creating a kind of visually beautiful world and trying to emote some kind of um, expression or um, feeling or vibe. And the people are kind of like conduits for that. They're like muses or um, the, the way, you know, painters used to paint people. It wasn't always about the likeness. Um, it was it was more like an allegory for something um, or a symbol of a certain, uh, you know, human expression or, or possibility. It's funny that you just spoke to allegory because uh, I know uh, Kevin at one point uh, had spoken to his work about this idea of allegory and about this idea of metaphor. And there's certainly a role, I think, in this storytelling or narrative concept that we're speaking about of the allegory, of the, the, the metaphor. Um, how has those metaphors or allegories changed in your work as you've worked with them more? Have they morphed for you? I think that there have been this sort of cast of characters in my life as a painter that have been consistent for many, 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 many years. And I consider them like as though I were a, um, like a director of a play. And I have the, I think, well, they'll be good in this role. And which is interesting because as you said, Doug, my work isn't figurative. This is all like inanimate objects or plant life or maybe animal life sometimes. But that idea of these consistent, these sort of like these things that are vessels for meaning of a certain thing, like the tree stump is kind of a new thing for me, as I mentioned earlier. Um, In the past, there was something, when I moved to Tucson years ago to go to graduate school, I was struck by the orange trees. I'd never lived around things like that before. And they were they were just fruit trees, but they would, you know, they'd drop their oranges on the ground. They'd be all over the sidewalk and all over the street. I thought, oh my God, people are not picking this fruit up. What is going on here? People are like, oh, it's just, there's too many. We don't care. Well, growing up in Iowa, that would have, it was like the ultimate exotic moment to see these oranges. So for me then, an orange at that point in my life as a symbol in my paintings became this really potent image of like opulence and almost decadence because people were just like discarding these things. Now for now, I I paint an orange and I have that residual memory of that. But to me now, if I were to put an orange in a painting, it might just because like, well, it speaks to something warm and something really juicy and rich. And plus the color orange is amazing. And it might look really great in that part of the painting. So it's sort of, changed over time but that initial thing is what grabbed me is i mean an orange who cares but it was that emotional moment i had early on with it that really kind of grabbed me um but i just have to quickly go back to something that Teresa said and you brought it up recently again doug and it was the idea that her work is still lives with people in them and i found that was so interesting i actually wrote it down because um i've always thought of my work as portraits. And like you said, I don't really paint the figure very rarely. I mean, I just, I've tried and it's like, oh, just don't go there. Just stop it. And the reason I think of the work as portraits, it's like, I almost have to, so that 
whatever it is I'm painting is imbued with that same kind of energy that can only come from like a living thing, like a living, breathing thing with eyeballs, you know, like an animal, like we're these creatures that have memories and loss and aspirations and and we're male or we're female or we're both or all these things really matter in the figurative presentation of a body in a painting and i'm i'm not interested in doing that but i am interested in that energy and how that can be sort of transmuted through what we would consider to be an inanimate object. And I don't believe that anything on earth is inanimate. And so how do I, as a painter then, push that forward through the depiction of a shopping cart or a tree stump or an orange or a bird? You know, I think that... <laughs> I, I love this accidental tourist, a penguin with the, the tea set and the orange. Yeah, so there's a... There's a portrait. To me, that is like a monumental portrait. It's this image he's showing me uh, via Zoom here is this penguin. He's kind of got his head down. On his head are stacked all these teacups. He's looking down at an orange. It doesn't belong. None of thing belongs. But I, I think of these portraits of like the old Spanish portraits of King so-and-so. And this is grand moment. And this is the kind of the antithesis of that. It's this humble moment. It's bewilderment. It's confusion. But I have to give it all of that sort of like push of to the viewer, like pay attention to this moment. There's something profound is happening here. This is special, rare. Um, thanks for bringing that up, Teresa. I appreciate that. I feel like most artists, their creations in some way, and I, th again, this could be a very generalized statement here. I'm aware of that, um, are self-portraits. Um, when you guys are doing an approaching narrative in your paintings, are you telling your story or are you telling a story of society or of some other thing? How do you see that um, emerging in your paintings? I uh, I was just thinking while we were just talking about the penguin and, and, you know, comparing that to the kings on horses and those rearing monumental pieces, I was just thinking like maybe this, the 21st century is just about the humbling of art. You know, we've all just kind of come down a few pegs and, uh, we're like, well, what should we paint about? Should we paint about that? No, that's too certain. No, this is too grand. Should I express myself? Oh, that's that's too egotistical. I like, I almost don't know what, you know, um, it, it it's maybe we're looking for something to to paint about. I feel like a lot of artists I know and and a lot of podcasts I'm on, we're always wondering what should we should be discussing. Like it, um, so so maybe that's part of what I'm searching for in my work sometimes. How do you recognize what those personal symbols are? Well, I mean, if I've, I've, I've done a few self-portraits um, and sometimes I'll go for like a likeness, you know, but I actually don't even really see myself as much of a self-portrait painter, even though I've done a lot of them. I'm almost just like a, like a mannequin to express another idea through. I'm like an easy model um accessible um easy to paint yeah i don't i don't know if i have that many personal symbols in in my work per se um i i think i'm kind of interested in this like 
wide lens at, at history and, and culture. Um, so I've always tried to not put too much purely personal or too much um, like of the time kind of things into my work. I'm, I'm kind of interested in um, like, like just like the long lens of art history, I think is kind of what I look at most of the time or think about. I can appreciate that. I, like I think I mentioned before, it's like timelessness is something of use. I think is very useful to me as an artist. Like for example, I don't want to paint, include in a painting like a cell phone. Right now, that just feels really too fresh. Too, um, it's like it will grab all the attention. It all the painting will be all about that. Then, because the viewer will go, "Oh yeah, that yeah," and then they'll apply all this sort of narrative on top of that that maybe has nothing to do with it. So it's tricky, even though it's like an appendage of our bodies now for most of us. But yet, I don't want to include that. I think there are artists that do, and they do it really well. Um, it's Salman Tour. He's got he's doing this great work with these people sh- shooting selfies of themselves, and there's glow, this green glow flooding their bodies. It's amazing. It's not me, though, but um, that personal kind of iconography, stuff like that, you know, what's more personal than my phone? I mean, it's mine, right? But it's a thing, too. It's a tool. So how does one kind of reconcile a personal story, a personal object? I have this little globe that I've had for years. It was like a bank and it's the globe of the earth, right? Well, for me, I did years of paintings of that as a symbol of home. It's where we live, right? And yet it's this little object that has almost become kind of this venerable thing to me, almost like a relic, like a sacred thing that if I ever lost it, I'd be just heartbroken. But I don't paint it anymore in some ways, because I think it's almost like a cliche to paint that in my painting right now. It's like, oh yeah, the earth, the earth, whatever. Oh yeah, global climate change, blah, blah, blah. And it becomes kind of a cliche. It's tricky stuff because each image now can become so fraught with um, meaning um, aside from what maybe it just really inherently is. It seems like there's a careful balance in both of your practices. You were alluding earlier, Teresa, about the run where you were on and you encountered this word art uh, and you got the message really quickly. Hit you over the head, you're done with it. Um, And Kevin, I feel like a lot of the images that you're kind of alluding to, you're hoping that the viewer... Uh, you don't want to be too overt. You want them to kind of use their imaginations to kind of bring that symbolism to life. Um, I think there's a really fine line there um, that a lot of artists are treading. And it's also about maybe what's authentic to them. Do you have some advice for somebody who might be struggling with creating narrative in their painting about how to approach it uh, in an authentic way, maybe some things that you have come across over your career. There's that saying, like, uh, you can kind of define a group by who's not in it better than you can by who's in it. So maybe you you kind of figure out where your boundaries are about like what kind of symbolism or ideas and objects or aesthetics you'd like to include and then um maybe just work 
within what you're most interested in. And if there's something you don't want to show, um, maybe don't do it because there'll be other people who do that and you just want to be more your authentic voice. Um, I was thinking, for example, like, like maybe my art's a little bit of escapism, you know, because I can go outside and see people with masks on and everyone's on their cell phone. So maybe I don't want that in my art, in my studio, in my head all the time, because that's what I see when I go out. So I, I'm looking for some kind of escape of imagination or, 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 or the spirit. Um, but, but maybe someone else would, would want to go straight for that. Um, straight for like, uh, a hot button topic and, and just make their work about that. Um, and, and they shouldn't feel bad about doing that. You know, that's, that's absolutely good. Or, or they could make work word art, you know? So, um, maybe, uh, just going for the thing that you love the most is, is probably the best advice because you'll do it the best. And it might be something that is not accepted by, uh, the people around you or the school you're in and, and, um, you just need to do it anyway. Ashley Williams was on one of our podcasts and she said, be unapologetically curious about your obsessions. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really good advice. I think that's what you're kind of saying too, is like chase those obsessions, the stuff that you're interested in and, and, you know, don't worry about the rest. I agree. I think another part of that is not just chase them, but like surrender. Like you find something that grabs you, like let it have you. You know, it's um, it's a kind of an aspect of having a kind of a mindful presence in your day. It's like you have to be kind of quiet enough in your mind or open eyes and open hearted enough to when something does kind of tickle you. you go, Wait a minute, what, why do I keep thinking about that? Why do I keep going back to that? Let yourself go there. It may not be sustainable, but it may be worth investigating. And like Teresa said, I do this thing I have for years. I create what I kind of call secret paintings. This is work that I don't ever intend to show anybody. They're often like little watercolors or little uh, ink drawings, any number of medium, it doesn't matter. But these are things that I think I need to find out about that. Is that something that maybe, because I can't stop thinking about it. It's kind of grabbed me, but I'm not sure I'm ready to kind of incorporated into the sort of the larger body of work. So I do these sort of secret paintings. Um, and it's a way for me to find out about these sort of passions or lack of or things that might be of interest to me. And to test things out, it's like the studio has to always remain on some level like a laboratory and not just a production facility. And so that's the lab part for me. And so I will do that regularly and in event, inevitably those sort of so-called secret paintings that work becomes part of the sort of mainstream of what I do and it keeps it fresh and it keeps it interesting. But if I were to say to somebody, you know, I keep seeing this, this water image, I, like I look at the river and I'm fascinated, like what's with this water? I don't, I don't want to paint water. I don't, it's like, there's something there for you. The only way you're going to know is to go there and find out. And if you don't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. Write about it then. Keep a little journal. Keep a sketchbook. Do the secret paintings. But if you don't, you're kind of saying no to the universe, which is trying to offer you these gifts constantly. And um, that level of curiosity, um, I think, has to be kind of 
cultivated, maintained, encouraged, and fed as artists. Um, otherwise, you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And who wants to do that? I love those answers. Um, I feel like we're always fighting with our own egos when we're creating artwork. And at some point, we have to stop doing and just be. Thank you guys so much. I, I'm so grateful to have had you on the program today. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Artbound podcast. For more information about the guests and what we've discussed, go to artistnetwork.com slash artbound. You can also find ways to connect with me and the Artbound team. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed the show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Artbound is an artist network podcast and produced by Golden Peak Media. It's hosted by me, Doug Casina. Our producer is Daisha Clay, with audio engineering by Evan Rutherford. Director of podcasts is Jared Mayer. Executive producer for Artist Network is Scott Meyer. Trisha Waddell is the director of content. Sarah Van Patter handles all our marketing. And Vanessa Childers does all things digital. If you'd like more information on sponsoring or advertising on Artbound, go to goldenpeakmedia.com. I'm Doug Casina. Until next time.